Julie, you and I have uh, both been physicians at the Chicago Marathon and, and worked at, uh, with people who do marathons a lot. And we both don't do it anymore because it's way too early in the morning to wake up on a Sunday. So we really just actually just berate the people who have to wake up that early and keep going. But every year, I feel like there is some story that you hear about of somebody like collapsing and dying, somebody who's like young or or certainly they're fit. They're running a marathon. <laughs> and mm-hmm. It's just like it's scary. It like hits viscerally. Right. Because we're all. Yeah. I mean, they tend to be around our age now that we're getting older. I don't think running a marathon is the easiest thing to do, but I also can't help but think that I'm a physician. Am I healthy enough to exercise? Like, should I be going and getting cardiac testing? Yeah. Do you ever think about that? I I absolutely do. I mean, I don't know. I'm also like a complete hypochondriac as well. Part of the, that's probably part of the reason I started this podcast with you, <laughs> why you're you're entertaining me in this podcast. So uh, yeah, I, I, I these things are terrifying. This is like worst case scenario stuff, and it's sort mm-hmm. of like how do these people not know their risk is ahead of time or or would anybody know? And I think it's really helpful to ask these questions to someone who can actually answer them and not just me being terrified all the time. Yeah. So I, I want to play a news clip that was from May that, that stood out to me about somebody recently that did that. So let me do that real quick. The Brooklyn Half Marathon returned to full capacity today for the first time in three years. Unfortunately, one of the runners collapsed near the finish line and later died. More than a dozen other runners needed medical care. The half marathon ended in Coney Island, and that's where Eyewitness News reporter Naveen Dhaliwal joins us this evening. Naveen? Yeah, Sandra, the race started about 7 o'clock this morning, and that runner collapsed here at the finish line just before 9 o'clock. Now, I spoke with Jeff earlier, and he says the temperatures around that time, around 9 o'clock this morning, were around 65 degrees. So it doesn't appear that weather was um, part of this death. Now, the New York Roadrunners uh, officials tell us that the 30-year-old was immediately treated here on site by medical staff and then rushed to Coney Island Hospital. The medical examiner has yet to determine the exact cause of death, but police say that right now it appears to be cardiac arrest. I think that really summarizes these stories that we see. And like you, the things that stood out to me is A, 30 years old, so younger than us. B, the weather wasn't even that hot, right? Because usually you're just like, oh, it was like a thousand degrees out and so somebody collapsed. And then the other thing that that kind of stood out was at the end when she was like, and this is the first death they had since 2014. And you're like, okay, well, I don't know if anybody should ever be dying at these marathons, right? <laughs> like people train for these things. And so again, that type of thing really stands out to me as a physician. But I feel like we get asked frequently, hey, I want to start exercising. Is there anything that I should do? Do you ever get the text message or like have patients ask you, you know, I really, I want to lose weight. I'm going to exercise. Like, what are the things I should do to get ready? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that happens all the time, especially in, even in my own, in my family with my siblings and my, my folks and stuff. And I'm always worried I'm going to give them the wrong answer. So I'm excited to hear what our, what our expert has to say. Yeah. So stick around. We're going to try to answer the question. How do I know if my heart is okay for exercise? Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. Julie, I want to bring on a really uh, awesome guest to answer this question for us. I want to bring on Dr. Anu Rao. I know Dr. Rao very closely from our time working together at Rush and and with the Chicago Bulls, but Anu is um, a cardiologist who went to medical school at Case Western. She did residency at University of Wisconsin and a cardiac fellowship at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. She's an associate professor of medicine and director of section of advanced cardiac imaging at Rush, while also the director of the Echo Lab and advanced cardiac imaging at St. Luke's Hospital in St. Louis. So she is frequently two places at once. She is the consulting cardiologist for the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago White Sox, and we frequently text back and forth. So she gets actually a lot of your doctor's friend's questions from me. Um, (laughs) And when she's not at work, she spends most of her time with her family, and she has two 11-year-old twin boys who provide her with most of her hands-on sports education so that she can talk knowledgeably about all the sports when she's around everybody. So with that, thanks for joining us, Dr. Rao. Yay! Thank you so much for having me to both of you. 
Yeah, this is going to be a uh, interesting question. I, I think Julie and I are both eager actually to hear from you about it because we're both getting older and frankly don't want to have this happen to us. But we treat a lot of athletes and and certainly get that question a lot in the uh, in the exam room about what people should be doing. So, just to start off with, like, can you touch on maybe why the situation that we taught started off with happens? Like, why did that happen? You know, um, I was reading that one of the earliest cases was actually described in ancient Greece. Where oh, so the just very, yesterday. Yes, okay. just yesterday. The very first marathoner, Pheidippides, he was a legendary Greek runner. He actually ran from Marathon, which is a place in Greece, to Athens in 490 BC. So he was running to announce the victory of the Greeks over the Persians. So after running about 40 kilometers to the Acropolis in Athens, he promptly collapsed and died. So this is the very first description of the marathon that ended in sudden cardiac death. Fortunately, though, while sudden cardiac death during or after a marathon happens, it is very, very rare. So estimates are that it happens about one in 100,000 marathoners. One in 100,000 marathoners die during a marathon. So why does this happen? If you think about it, marathons are very, very stressful events on the body. The heart is using a ton more oxygen. It's beating faster. It's on overload. It's pumping so much more blood out than at rest. The right side of the heart is getting bigger. It's dilating. Your stress hormones are on overdrive. All of this really creates this crazy environment of inflammation. And marathons are also set up for dehydration. You mentioned specifically in in the Boston case that it wasn't a very hot day, but marathoners routinely get dehydrated. And this kind of dehydration can result in electrolyte imbalances. So all of this can really create an environment that is very risky for the heart. So this kind of environment can trigger things like rhythm problems, whether it's rhythm problems with the top chamber or the bottom chamber, and some of these can be life-threatening. Also, can create a situation where plaques can rupture in susceptible individuals. So plaque rupture uh, is often referred to as heart attack. And, and really, the key here is the word susceptible individuals. So the risk is is really in those who have some sort of predisposition. We know that in athletes, in marathon runners that are young, hopefully your age, under the age of uh, 40, really what plays a role is things that you inherited. So congenital heart disease, any sort of rhythm issues that you may have inherited, problems with the uh, heart muscle being too thick, something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. These are things that you're born with. So young people, when they have events, these are usually because they were born with a condition or problems with the way yeah, the plumbing is, the plumbing yeah. to the heart, the coronary arteries sometimes are not located in their usual spot. So these conditions really play the biggest role in young patients. In people over the age of 40, which is old in cardiology land, uh, the, the, I know, I know, usually the number one cause is plaque, atherosclerotic coronary artery disease. This is plaque buildup in the coronary arteries. It's interesting to me, and I think this is a, a very commonly used expression, especially on the news and in general on television and stuff. When there's a, a cause of death, especially when it's in a, a sudden acute death like this, they yeah. usually say the cause is cardiac arrest. And the thought I have is, doesn't everybody yeah. experience cardiac arrest in death? <laughs> doesn't that just mean heart stoppage? But I think what they're getting at in, when they were saying it with this was that the primary cause of death seems like it was an actual cardiac event. Can you sort of explain to our listeners like what is sort of meant by cardiac arrest and why is that term used all the time in the news yeah. or on television shows and what does it actually mean? So Julia right, I think the term cardiac arrest generally means heart stoppage. We always assume that it's heart stoppage until proven mm-hmm. otherwise. Really the only way to know is if you were spying on someone continuously and recorded their heart stopping. But in general, if somebody is 
losing consciousness, that doesn't always have to be cardiac arrest, right? So you have to show that something happened where your heart's activity stopped. And very often in a setting like a marathon, you're not able to show that. So we just assume the worst until proven otherwise. So in the case of the the Boston marathoner who's age 30, I would be very suspicious that that individual had something that we call congenital, something that they were born with, whether it was, you know, rhythm issue that they were born with or an artery that was not in the right place, you know, heart muscle that was too thick. Uh, that would be my suspicion. But you're right. We never always know uh, that the heart stopped. So the, the fear has to be that, if, you know, the person listening and even myself is that that person had the congenital thing and and then obviously ran a marathon and collapsed and died. And we don't know that person's history on whether they'd run other ones, but assuming they trained, is there a likelihood that this person had experienced symptoms? Is it probably that they didn't and then this is a fluke thing and it's just unfortunate? Like, is there anything that somebody can do to kind of make sure they're ahead of these things? Yeah, so it's a very good question. You know, the American College of Cardiology tells us that it's appropriate to screen people for heart disease before initiating a new exercise regimen if you're over 35 years old with significant risk factors. So if you have diabetes, cholesterol problems, high blood pressure, if you're obese, that's really who gets screened per the guidelines, okay? Or if you have certain suspicious symptoms. So the suspicious symptoms that always raise our eyebrows are chest pain, shortness of breath, any irregular heartbeats, or if you've noticed a change in performance without any clear reason. So these are sort of red flag symptoms that would warrant screening, even if you're not 35 years old. But you know, the problem is that in young patients, very often this can be their presenting symptom. So, you know, when we see this all the time, you know, the totally previously healthy basketball players who have an event, first event while playing basketball. So that's kind of what makes it scary, right? In younger patients, they don't always have some of the typical symptoms that older people have, at least due to plaque buildup or atherosclerosis. So these things we really do need to have a high index of suspicion for screening patients. I think as sports medicine physicians, thanks, Ani, that's, that was a really great synopsis. Yeah. As sports medicine physicians, yeah. especially around this time of year, I mean, while we're taping right now, it's early September, and we do a lot of sports physicals. Yeah. Um, and at the elementary, but mainly the high school and into the collegiate level, these are required before you can play, you have to be yeah. evaluated by a physician or you know a, a licensed healthcare provider who has the credentialing to to sign off on these things. And even even a uniformly applied pre-participation physical exam is not going to catch everything. But if you, I think you know, if you do it for every single person, then you that's kind of the best that you've got to yeah. to catch some of these things. And really. You know, we tell when we train our resident physicians and our fellow physicians and our students and everybody that we work with and the athletic trainers that we work with, it's really, you know, the history is a big part of it. And it's asking about family history. We often ask about, you know, do, do you have a, a first degree family member who died suddenly at a young age from a heart condition or, you know, from some sort of unexpected circumstance? Or the, the big one that I always ask every single athlete, no matter what, is have you ever gotten so dizzy during exercise or have you ever passed out in the middle of exercise. I think that's one big red flag that freaks me out and then makes me send that athlete your way, <laughs> Anu. But it's yeah. interesting because we don't get the physical exam necessarily when we're adults to screen for us for these you know, potential life-threatening things. So, Julie, I think this is a very controversial topic, as you know. What is the right way to screen our you know, recreational athletes or high school athletes or collegiate level athletes. I think everybody agrees that, you know, all athletes need to get screened with a history and physical exam from their doctor. What's not known is, is this enough? Is this enough to capture those high-risk athletes? There have been a lot of screening programs that do widespread EKG screening for all athletes. And interestingly, that has been, and it makes sense, right? Like your gut reaction is, okay, so if an EKG can pick up certain things, why not do it on any athlete, not just professional athletes, but your high schoolers, your collegiate athletes. And it turns out that 
the answer is not simple. So there have been programs that do widespread EKG screening. There's the Europeans actually advocate for widespread EKG screening. But these kinds of programs have never really taken off in the United States. And, and I think it boils down to feasibility, cost effectiveness, and importantly, do programs like this lead to improved outcomes? And I'll tell you, you know, Jeremy, as, as you know, we get these athlete EKGs and they look different from non-athlete EKGs. And many of us, including trained cardiologists, don't know how to interpret these athlete EKGs. So if you implement a widespread EKG screening program for everyone, you have to have people that know how to interpret these findings and not kind of overreact or underreact to the machinery. And very often the first rule in cardiology is you fold over the EKG and don't pay attention to the machinery, right? The automatic reading that's on top of the EKG. So right, real quick, can you just explain to our listeners who might not know what an EKG is? is an electrocardiogram. So this is the test that has all the blips and the bloops uh, that prints out on this kind of pink paper. This is basically a recording of the electrical activity of your heart. And very often, this kind of EKG can pick up subtle things that have to do with the electrical system or the plumbing of the heart, which is the, the blood supply of the heart, or the heart muscle. So we can pick up a lot of these abnormalities doing EKGs. So we see EKGs that look very different in athletes. And in order to have widespread screening programs, you also have to have people that know how to interpret these EKGs. And you know, even in the most trained cardiologists, we struggle with these EKGs and they're very specific criteria. We've, you know, we are fortunate at Rush to have sports cardiologists that this is what we love to do. And even for us, these EKGs can be challenging at times. And so I think widespread screening with anything more than, you know, seeing your doctor, getting a history, getting a physical exam done, getting EKG screening, which seems to make sense, it's tough because it boils down to logistics. Do you have people that know how to read these EKGs? Do you have manpower? Do you have resource allocation? So really, it makes it difficult to implement this on a grand, grand scale. It's a really interesting conversation that could be in an episode in its own about testing it and more testing and interpretations because it really we, we have seen that quite a bit where where when you don't have access to people who see a lot of athletes, especially uh, the athletic heart is what you're describing on these things, they get frequently misinterpreted and that can have consequences both directions. I think the natural instinct of the listener is to think, okay, well, you're going to miss something and then that person's going to have a bad outcome. But the other the thing we actually see more frequently is overreacting in a significant much more testing. So so people getting anxiety of having an issue and then they go get an echo and then they have to go get this test and a stress test. And it turns out it all was normal anyways. And so, and that may not sound that bad to people or like all this extra testing. I've had this conversation with many people. It may not sound that bad, but A, it's very expensive. B, it was normal to start with. And C, like, Anybody who's had an abnormal test, if you're listening right now and you've gone through an abnormal test, you know what the anxiety feels like between that abnormal test and getting your follow-up test. It's miserable, especially when you're told that it's your heart and there could be a problem with it and all that stuff. So it is very controversial. There's meetings that are set up strictly for this. It's something that comes up every year at every conference. Um, it's an awesome topic. There's a lot of great people with good good stuff. We'll have to bring on more people even to, to give different perspectives of that. You've also mentioned that one in 100,000 marathon runners will have that thing. So you think about the the rate sounds like it's really, really low. And again, if you were screening for this, like think about how many EKGs you'd have to do to find that person, even if that person's came back abnormal, which it may not have. But then I think to myself, like the, the Chicago Marathon's how many people? Like 40,000 people every single year. So then I'm thinking it's actually like two and a half Chicago marathons that some, in, statistically speaking, somebody's going to go down and that's that's scary. And so one of the other conversations is like, it's a hard conversation that we have in medicine about like the cost effectiveness of things. People don't want to talk about cost effectiveness because every life matters. But to a certain extent, this the hard part of this is like how much resources can we put out to save one life and how important is that that one person versus how much other harm was happening? So complicated and, and difficult. And so one person should never have to go down. And I think in the athletic population, the reason why this ends up on the news so frequently is because these are athletic people who are running a marathon and it wasn't the person who was just walking down the street and had a cardiac arrest very frequently because that happens how many times a day everywhere. 
And and that, that's probably just as scary, but it doesn't get the same headlines as the 30-year-old that's doing it. It's very, very interesting. I think my biggest regret so far, though, is that we didn't get the video footage and with the news from Ath- the uh, Athens Action News of, uh, f- you know, like af- after this guy, if- yeah, after he went down, because we had the clip before, but I feel like that would have been some interesting footage that they <laughs> would have 490 BC. And, and talking, yeah, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I've been completely out dad joked in the last, like, five or six episodes from Julie. So I'm, I've been working extra hard. I didn't prep for this episode at all. I really just looked at dad jokes. So. <laughs> Everything's a competition, Jeremy. One of the things we talked about was a lot of people want to increase their amounts of exercise, or frankly, maybe now people are listening to this podcast and they're like, shoot, maybe I'm doing too much exercise for my heart. So maybe we can stratify by, by kind of younger, middle-aged and elderly and kind of talk about what people can do to kind of make sure that they're doing everything they should be if they're relatively healthy to exercise. I mean, if your primary goal is to be healthy, is for cardiovascular health, you don't need to run a marathon. That's not what the American Heart Association recommends. Your cardiologist is not going to tell you to go run a marathon uh, in order to be your peak cardiovascular health. What we recommend is really pretty simple. We recommend 150 minutes a week. So that's like 30 minutes a day, five days a week of moderate physical activity. And moderate is basically whatever allows you to carry on a conversation. So if you are breathless, can't carry on a conversation, that's not moderate. So that's kind of like getting a B plus probably, A minus maybe for your cardiologist. You know, I would say that the risk of cardiac events, so heart issues appears to be highest in those that suddenly go from couch to marathon. So you don't want to do that. So you don't even want to go directly from couch to 5K. You want to gradually get there. So the risk of heart issues is highest when you suddenly accelerate. The highest risk, highest overall cardiovascular risk is if you don't exercise at all. If you exercise one to two times a week, your risk of dying is way lower than someone that doesn't exercise. Your risk of a heart attack really goes down dramatically if you're exercising four to five times a week. So I would say that you really need to ask yourself, what is your goal? Is your goal is cardiovascular health. It's 150 minutes, moderate exercise a week. That's kind of what we recommend. If you want to accelerate, you want to do this gradually. You don't want to jump from your couch and all of a sudden want to start running a marathon. You need to really be cautious about it. You need to listen to your body. You might want to talk to your doctor, especially if you have risk factors, to make sure that you are in your peak uh, condition and that you don't need any cardiac testing before you accelerate. So definitely, I would say, listen to your body, pay attention to any unusual symptoms. So unusual symptoms, bothersome symptoms are things like chest discomfort, shortness of breath, palpitations, feeling dizzy. These are all symptoms that really raise red flags. And make sure you get screened, especially if you're over 35, if you have risk factors, you should see your doctor just to make sure you are okay to accelerate. I'm going to give you three example patients. So I have a 25-year-old who just graduated college, has a desk job, and really wants to get healthy, never really previously exercised, doesn't have a big medical history, you know, is, let's just say, like, maybe a little overweight, but but nothing, not, not obese or anything like that. And that person walked into your office and said, can I start exercising? What would you say or do to them? Yeah, I would take a history and physical, just like you guys do, and say, please go ahead. You are low risk, low, low, low risk. You must exercise. Okay. And go slow. Give specific recommendations on like what go slow means. You know, we always talk about what this is, and I think it differs for every individual. I think the bottom line is you want to pay attention to your symptoms. So whatever symptoms, you know, whatever elicits worrisome symptoms should make you slow down. Julie, I think what I usually tell people, I'd love to hear what you do too, because we don't actually get to see patients together. But I usually, I'd like to give people like set things. And so I either use a percentage, so I'll be like increased by 10 or 20% a week of whatever, however you're measuring. So whether that be minutes or mileage or whatever. And then the other thing I'll tell people is like, start off by not doing it every single day. So like have a rest day in between. Those are the kind of the two ways that I try to like gauge it for people. Do you do anything different? No, that's exactly right. Yeah, we want to be a home base for everybody who has heard from their doctor, go exercise, you need to start exercising, or you should lose weight, but like it's periods at the end. Right. Okay. 
should be an ellipsis or right yeah Yeah. or now you talk yeah so like there's got to be better better conversations than that so all right so second patient i have like uh, let's just say a 50 year old healthy person again somebody who just hasn't exercised a lot they want to start increasing their exercise maybe they're making new year's resolutions for this argument i would just want to say they don't have any medical problems because i think what you've established at this point is if somebody has like high blood pressure or they have diabetes or they have some sort of like if you have a comorbidity of any sort you probably should be talking to your doctor and maybe getting even like some cardiac screening. So let's just say this person has no medical problems and they're 50 years old and they want to start exercising. What do you say to that person? You know, it's interesting. The highest risk is in middle-aged men. The highest risk of events is in middle-aged men. So that person, I would say, I would look at that person a little bit more with a fine-tooth comb. I would say, all right, let's look at your risk factors. Let's measure your blood pressure. Let's do your cholesterol. I'd have a very low threshold for an EKG in that, in that gentleman. And I would say the same thing to him. You don't want to go from couch to to marathon. I would give the same kind of activity guidelines to that gentleman. And I would probably have a higher threshold to to do an EKG. Yeah. What's your threshold to like do a stress test? And for those listening, a stress test is literally where you stress the heart. So you have somebody run on a treadmill and look at their imaging or you have, you know, in the worst case scenario, I guess they give them drugs, but that's not the person we're talking about. No, I reserve stress tests in people who are symptomatic. So if anyone's having symptoms, anything that looks or sounds suspicious, I do a stress test on. I mean, I like like exercise stress tests where you get on a treadmill and see what happens to their heart electrically. In patients who are older like that, I usually like to throw in some imaging. So do ultrasound images of the heart to see what happens to the heart. Is it squeezing appropriately? But really stress tests are reserved if I see any EKG abnormalities or if they're having symptoms. So I don't do willy-nilly stress tests for no reason for asymptomatic. All right, last patient, uh, somebody who's like 78 years old and just got their AARP like magazine that told them they should be exercising and they're like, I should be doing that um, same scenario. Like, would you do anything different at that age? I think at that age, I mean, I would treat that person exactly like the 50-year-old. I would definitely have a very low threshold for an EKG. I, I think older patients like that, there isn't a whole lot of data in older patients like that who want to suddenly increase, go from couch to 5k at age 78 i suppose i would congratulate them and applaud them for yeah for making this choice at this stage in their lives but i i would do the same thing as a 50 year old what about you guys that's interesting you're right because i do feel like obviously at that point somebody's probably already been exercising so how about the 78 year old who's an avid your doctor's friend listener who is like i'm i'm doing exercise and now you've made me really worried about my heart and i've never had it looked at should i should i be doing anything i'm a healthy person and i have no symptoms So again, we reserve cardiac testing, things like stress tests or other kinds of tests like ultrasound of the heart, things like that for people who have something that screens positive, whether it's on your EKG that looks a little wonky or symptoms that sound funny, very low threshold to do further testing in that patient population. That's awesome. The the phenomenon, Julie, I want to ask if you've seen this phenomenon too. The threshold of like people in their 70s and 80s and even into their low 90s that I see who are expecting to be able to do activities that they did in like their 30s and 40s has exponentially increased. Talk to those people and I say, you know, if you go back a generation, like people in their 70s and 80s didn't expect to be playing like pickleball. They just didn't. And I'm not saying that they were right. I actually think it's great that you want to keep playing pickleball. But at the same time, like we're learning new things about what happens to an 80 year old who's playing pickleball with their muscles and with their heart and with their recovery that we've never known before because there just haven't been a lot of 80 year olds doing that. It's a very new phenomenon that is very interesting that you just mentioned there's not a lot of data. And I think it's we maybe we should be looking at that population a little closer. Yeah. So you want to start specializing in the octogenarians and nonagenarian? I, I think I think Julie already does that. I sure do. Do I think you should be recruiting more of them for for your NBA team, Jeremy? Just to see what happens. Just see how that goes. Yeah. Well, I, they could be reserves or maybe practice. That would be fun. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of um, in Major League Baseball. A couple teams have instead of having ball boys, they're having ball dudes now, which are like grandpas and and older guys that are you know still pretty spry and can go shag some balls out. And uh, my father-in-law, John, is like, you better sign me up the moment <laughs> that there's an opportunity for me to do it because 
There'd be some sports center reels about him, Jeremy. I don't know. He's pretty impressive. So they need to, should they be doing cardiac screening on that before they get out there? <laughs> the bald yeah. dudes? Probably. Yeah. I'll defer to the cardiologist here. You you can be the bald dude after you pass your physical. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee they would uh, they would recommend one. Well, There's my guess no. is they signed a waiver. You signed yes. a waiver. That, <laughs> yes. Here's here's your waiver that says we're not we're not liable for anything. We're not liable, right? You brought up the NBA, Julie. That's a great segue because we do treat professional athletes differently. Like we do test them differently. So maybe, Anu, can you kind of comment on like why we do that? Like what what's the reason for that? Yeah, I mean, again, I think this is a controversial topic, but um, we have clear guidelines from the professional athlete uh, organizations about what to do. As we've discussed, widespread uh, screening of your collegiate athletes or your high school athletes is controversial boils down to logistics, boils down to manpower, resource considerations, makes it very difficult to implement comprehensive screening on a very large scale. But I think the ball game is completely different when it comes down to professional athletes. Why is it different? These athletes get very rigorous testing. And perhaps this practice is rooted in the probability that these athletes experience an event. It's usually in the setting of intense training or competition. Simply put, we have more resources dedicated to professional athletes. The impact of a professional athlete experiencing an event in front of hundreds or thousands of people can be really jarring as a society. I think it's very difficult to see these high-profile athletes experience events. Some can even argue that, you know, as a society, it's our ethical obligation to make sure we are mitigating the risk in this highest-performing group of athletes. So I think it boils down to this is a high-profile field. They are performing the highest level of activity. They're pushing themselves to the highest level. We really can't eliminate the risk completely, but I think we just simply have more resources and more guidelines uh, allocated. What's your take, Jeremy? Yeah, I think the other thing too is, again, like each professional sport is managed differently. So it's not that they're all doing the same thing. And a lot of that actually comes down to the specific populations that are in them. So if you talk about the NBA, you know, like the biggest thing that causes sudden cardiac death in the United States is a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which again is basically like the muscle is too large. Your heart is a muscle. A lot of that is genetic or can potentially be due to exercise or whatever. But the NBA is full of individuals who fit the criteria for that condition. And so the rate at which hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is hitting our high schools is much different than the rate that it hits in the NBA just because of what type of athlete is there. But at the same time, like that rate is not nearly as high and the sport is much different than let's just say in the major league, like major league baseball. And so they don't get the same amount of cardiac testing because of that. And so I think, again, it's all about like, what's your pre-test probability? What that means is like, what is the likelihood that if you did these tests that it's going to be positive? And then in reality, you everything you just hit on and like, we also have yep. the resources and like, what are the consequences and, and all of that stuff is, is important. So I, I think it's a really interesting conversation because I think a lot of times that stuff is communicated to people through the media about like what's happening to professional athletes. And I think we extrapolate that as a population to think that that's what should be happening to us. And again, like it's not apples to apples. It's the same thing we've talked about on other episodes with MRIs. It's not the same thing. It's not being done for the same reasons. So again, I think that that's a a very interesting point. Yeah, I I think you bring up a very good point. The NBA specifically, uh, basketball is extremely intense. It's high endurance. I think the changes that we see as cardiologists in athletes that play basketball are very different than, you know, someone that plays golf or cricket. (laughs) So sure of the game, that's different. So we really need to consider the milieu uh, in which the athlete performs. So, and they're also international sports to a certain extent. And so like different parts of the world have different issues too. So like Italy is the common one that comes up all the time, right? Because they have a higher rate of ARVD. What is it, AR, 
ARVD, which is which is what Anu. Arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia is basically where fat invades the heart. Yeah, well, well said. Right That'll be on our next T-shirt that we're distributing I to everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, right. So it's it's a different, they don't have nearly the rate of the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that we have, but they have this other condition. Yeah. And so I think what is the, their standard is actually the EKG everybody, right? But I also think that don't they do like a lot of cardiac MRIs over there? Or they, they do something a lot different than we do here. Yes. You're absolutely right. I think uh, the EKG screens actually pick up a whole lot more ARVD because it's more prevalent in that part of the world. Right. So if we get a ba- you know a basketball player who comes in and they're from they're Italian, we have to think about that, and vice versa. Like again, the the, the the different populations have different things, and I just think that's so interesting. When I first learned about that, I was like, oh, that's so interesting because of just the genetic aspect of it. Are there genetic tests for these things? Like, can I walk in and be like, I just want to get all the genetic, you know how they do all the, you can get genetic tested for almost everything these days. I mean, when we had our last kid, they were like, how much genetic tests do you want? And I was like, really? It's like a menu? Um, like, but yeah, right. But like, can I just walk in and be like, I want the heart genetic test. Can you tell me if I got those? No. So you really do want to be targeted with genetic testing. Otherwise, it's just a fishing expedition. You don't know what to do with this information. You know, there there definitely are genetic tests for specific conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has a you know great panel of, of tests that we can send off for, certain inherited arrhythmias we can test for. We don't just kind of cast a wide net and screen for all sorts of genetic things. You really want to tailor genetic testing for what you're looking for. Yeah, because just like you were saying before, Jeremy, you may have someone the same way you don't want to screen everybody for everything. Think about how scary and anxiety inducing that might be to know that you have some genetic marker for a heart condition. And it may not be very widespreadly known. That definitely means that you're going to have a problem. So are you just freaking out for the rest of your life? Like I do every day for no good reason. <laughs> like How unkind that would be to put that on someone if you, if there wasn't a really good reason behind it, you know, I mean, I I think there's a lot of that talking about in in different cancer screening and cancer genes too. Like just because you have this gene does not mean that you're going, that it is a foregone conclusion that you will get cancer. But certainly you're right, Anu and Jeremy, like this is a risk stratification tool, what you guys are talking about and how we screen and how we get a good history and how we look at special populations and research those populations and see what the data shows us that they may be at higher risk for. So I know there's part of my brain that's like MRI my whole body all the time and then check my blood constantly for everything. But goodness gracious, what a what a kind of a scary, isolating way to live your life, really, if it if that was completely available to you, you know? Yeah, and I don't know if you'd want to see what was on those things because it's just it leads to more confusion than it, than it does with yeah. else. Who does get genetically tested, Anu? Like who? I would say that the most common indications are uh, things like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's that the condition where the heart muscle is very thick. It's one of the common causes of sudden cardiac death in athletes. If we hear about a family history of sudden cardiac death, anyone that is young in in your family that's died under the age of 40, that's kind of a red flag for us. And we typically would do an echocardiogram, an ultrasound of your heart to see if there's any thickness of the heart muscle and then send you off for genetic testing if we saw something. We also look at your EKG. If we see anything abnormal on your EKG, for example, uh, something called long QT syndrome, where the intervals between your little blips and bloops uh, are a little bit longer, that can suggest that you have a predisposition to have rhythm problems with your heart, life-threatening rhythm problems. That's something that's treatable. We want to know. It can have implications on your children, on your siblings. So those specific conditions we can test for. And there's also certain forms of heart muscle problems that are genetically passed down. So we do a careful history, especially family history. We look at your EKG to see if you have anything that's a red flag, and that can guide our genetic testing. I think one of the things that gets brought up a lot in the office is, you know, like you'll have these conversations with people and then they'll usually say something to the effect of, so like, what would you do in my situation? Or like, what would you do if I was your mother or if you were my son? So I'm going to put you in an uncomfortable situation and say, 
you have two 11-year-old boys. They play a lot of sports. Let's just fast forward. They're 23 years old. They have no medical problems and they want to run a marathon. Are you doing anything? Are you just telling them to go do it and train? And like, you're the cardiologist. So what would you do for your own kids? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, we, we get asked this all the time. There are a number of cardiologists who actually say that knowing all of this, they've slowed down. So they don't, they stopped running marathons. And I think that's the wrong message to send out. I, I think the risk is very individualized. It's specific. The question is, what are you getting out of that marathon? Are you willing to take a one in a hundred thousand risk of, of dying to run this thing? I mean, we, we take risks all the time. We take risks driving on the road, commuting in Chicago traffic, uh, you know, whatever it is. And I, I think nothing in life is risk-free. I think if your goal is cardiovascular health, you don't have to run a marathon, but there are obviously a lot of benefits with mental health, with knowing that you can run a marathon, there's camaraderie, there's a feeling of having achieved something. So I absolutely would encourage kids to run that marathon as long as they've trained, that they've done it, that they haven't gone from couch to, to marathon, um, and that they're paying attention to their symptoms. And you're not slapping an EKG on them before they do it? No. You heard it here. I mean, I think that, that like, again, like, that's great, right? I mean, she, you have access to all this stuff. You could just bring them into your own office and do it. And nobody, you know, like nobody would look sideways. So I think hearing what somebody would do for their own family is powerful um, stuff. I think it's interesting to hear you say, you know, you don't have to run a marathon to have cardiovascular health. It also sounds like you don't have to run to have cardiovascular health. You're like, we see so many, I think just this time of year, because the marathon is coming up at the time of the taping of this episode. And I, I think, think running, running is, is an activity, activity that, that a lot of folks look to because it's generally free. Most of the time you can go do it outside if your, your environment permits either, you know, your social environment or the actual temperature and such. But I don't know. Some people, I don't think you have to aspire to need to be a runner either. <laughs> like, I used to run a bit, and I realized I don't really love it anymore, and I like walking. I really like walking. It's great for my health mentally and physically, and I think you're right, Anu, like, having an, an activity that you could choose to do with another person and not be talking like this, you know, is kind of fun. So you don't have to run to be deemed healthy by your cardiologist. Would you agree with that statement? Totally agree. 150 minutes, moderate exercise. Moderate exercise, anything where you can hold a conversation. That's, that's what's recommended, 150 minutes a week. Amen. Find something you love and do that. Yeah. 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 So Anu, what is one piece of advice that you'd give the listener for cardiac health and exercise in general? So your overall risk of dying from exercise is minuscule. It is very, very low. The risk of not exercising is way, way worse than any risks of exercising. Runners have a 45% lower risk of dying overall than non-runners. So I would say don't be afraid, know your risk, and gradually work your way up. Listen to your doctors. Exercise is wonderful for your heart health. That's great. I think we need to uh, transition to our world-famous uh, rapid fire and, and make Anu uh, incredibly un uh, uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, gosh. perfect. Here we okay. go. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's like tempting me to ask some really weird stuff. <laughs> that's, the, that's why we do it. Well, Anu, you mentioned as we were starting, this is your first podcast you've ever been a guest on. What? I know. First of all, no, the exact opposite is true. It's my first podcast, too. <laughs> the other ones were, were Jeremy's evil twin, his clone. <laughs> well, first of all, I'd say kudos because you did an absolutely wonderful job. And I, I would love to have you back on over and over and over again because we'll, we'll think of other cardiology-related things. I'll come um, a t-shirt if you give me a t-shirt. Oh, uh, girl. We, we, you'll get the t-shirt, the sweatshirt, the hat, the shoes, the matching bag. The yeah. <laughs> Now i got to make all those things. Well, I mean, have you done, this is an interesting question, because yeah. I know that you might be involved with, Jeremy and I are planning on doing a little local news TV little spot about about us coming up, and I and I think you're going to be a part of that, too. Oh, so you, you've been on television, though. I mean, being involved in professional athletics, have you not? You know, guys, I absolutely run away from all the <laughs> That was going to be my question, is do you I like it? <laughs> I run away from this stuff. I, I am 
I am shocked that I did this. Thank you for mm. the opportunity. But yes, I'm one of those people that runs away. I won't even make a patient video. You know, like oh. doctor videos for Rush. I <laughs> yeah. won't make it. Oh, I, you're so. I'm we're gonna have well, to. You, we're gonna have to hang out more on. I was gonna say. We're going to lift you up. You're going to be doing these like left and right, because again, like we need more people like you oh, to be doing yes. these things and not the people yes. who are boisterous and shouldn't be doing them. So yeah, just like present I, company included. Just like I peer pressured Julie into this podcast, I'm going to continue the uh, the peer pressure to continue to bring good people like Anu uh, out of their shell. Yes. We've focused a little bit on your family um, and you guys did recently have a, a move. So you, you just moved from... Gloria, Chicago to St. Louis, which kills all of us. I'd like you to tell us how that move went and what you think of St. Louis. Yes. So we are still adjusting to various things in St. Louis. You guys, the pizza here is not pizza. Okay. <laughs> oh, the famous St. Louis uh, pizza no. that everybody talks about all the oh, time? Yes. That soggy yes, yes. mess? So, yeah. Yes, so this is made with what they call a cracker crust. It's literally made out of cracker oh. crust and mm, a synthetic mm. cheese called Provel cheese. So no, I, this yes, wasn't like was, a St. Louis gas station, right? Like you actually like went to a restaurant. <laughs> and had rolling hot dogs on it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. there, there's a lot of things about St. Louis that we are getting educated about. We miss our NBA and NFL teams here. This, this yeah. city is all about hockey. I need to brush up on my hockey. If you guys can mm -hmm. educate me about mm -hmm. hockey, I would appreciate it. And sure. soccer and volleyball. These are sports that I know nothing about. <laughs> and the Cardinals, we won't, we won't talk about the Cardinals. Well, and they had an NFL team and they left, and that's a very sour subject for everybody I know who's from St. Louis. So yeah, it, it, don't, it burns, don't pick it burns, that scab. It burns deep. I don't think we have many St. Louis listeners. I'm sure we'd love to expand everywhere, so maybe if you want to tell people. But ultimately, we're also, we can throw as much shade on St. Louis as we want. We, we reverse <laughs> the flow of our river to send all of our oh, shit boy. down to St. Louis. <laughs> so. Oh. so you're welcome, Anu. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so happy. But you know what? I don't miss the commute. My commute no. into work is like 15 minutes. Um, people are very nice here. Mm -hmm. I I definitely still miss Chicago, but, uh, you know, I'll eventually grow to eat this cracker crust business they call pizza. <laughs> this Velveeta wow. disaster. No, no, thank you. Um, Anu, uh, I got I get so excited whenever it turns to September because I'm a big fan of spooky season and all things Halloween and fun. I know you have 11 year old kids. Are they too cool to trick or treat? You guys, I think they're way too cool for trick or treating. So no, you have to do it then. I love this is my favorite holiday. Mm, me too. I, there is nothing that makes me happier than well, they won't let me go trick or treating with them anymore. So it's, they used to, right? You used to be the parents that would go with the kids. 11-year-olds are, are weird creatures. They like to go with their friends. Oh, yeah, no, so not with mom. Last year, I think it, it turned from cute little costumes yes. to just weird, creepy clowns and things. So <laughs> we'll see what they pick. You just need to go down to their level and do the same thing. Like if, if they're weird, creepy clowns, you're right there with them. Just put the mask on and the paint and all that and just fly that freak flag, right? So, Julie, I have to ask you, what what is your costume this year? I feel like you have a good one. I was just thinking about that. Usually we try to do something really like weird and niche, which is not as fun because then it's like one person knows what the hell you are. And you're like, oh, we're best friends. And everybody else is like, I don't get it. And you're annoying. We've been watching a lot of uh, House of the Dragon. So the new Game of Thrones sort of prequel. So I do have a blonde wig. So I might have to make something out of that. Usually I'll do something pop culture-y now, but... Um, but yeah, that it's, that, that's, a, that's a very, that's a very hard question for me to answer Anu because a lot of time and a lot of effort goes into it. Last year we were Ted Lasso characters from Ted Lasso. It's a very, very fun show. I don't have my costume yet, although my son is going to be a really cute elephant that was, uh, he put on actually in my wife's reel recently. Oh. And then uh, my, my daughter's going to be, I think a fairy. I think, oh my goodness! I think. Of course, she is the most gorgeous fairy in the land. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what mom and dad will be, but uh, this is this is Katie's favorite time of the year too. She just the best. fucking loves Halloween, so um, it's the best. It is great. 
Well, hey, Anu, you just mentioned uh, how much you love the spotlight. So why don't you tell people kind of like if they want to find out more information about you, where where can they find more information about you? Uh, where are you putting all your social media pictures of your kids? Where can we find these Halloween pictures once they're available? You guys, I have like zero presence on social media. I I have, you know, I need to consult with you guys about, mm-hmm. about this. You can find me on my hospital website. Yeah. I've heard of that. I'm still on faculty Hot. at Rush. <laughs> uh, you can find me at St. Luke's. You can email me. I'm sure uh, you can put an email uh, address. Do people email anymore? Or is it? I'll send a carrier and... pigeon to you. I'm sure people would yeah. love to email you questions, to be honest, if, if they got the doctor's totally. email address. So, yeah. But um, I will make sure the spelling of your name is accurate uh, in the show notes and in the title so people can find you. It. But uh, she's a she's really a great doctor, everybody. If you have cardiac questions, oh, yeah. you can brave the St. Louis aspect of things and 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 visit her or maybe just pry her back to Chicago for us if, if you didn't do that. <laughs> So, you know, Dr. Rao just gave us a a bunch of really wonderful information about sort of how we best can screen ourselves or go to our doctors to help them screen us um, to know what's what's safe endeavors into exercise, especially if you haven't been really doing very much. So we thank her prodigiously for that information, um, answering our question and and hopefully expanding our knowledge of, of some of the the risk factors for these sudden cardiac events um, and how we can look for them more in ourselves and in our families. And Yeah, and I'm definitely less scared about my own situation. So thank you for talking me off a ledge. So hopefully everybody else can kind of take a deep breath and realize that these things are rare and there are things that you can do and be on top of and you should communicate your symptoms and certainly understand your family history. I think that's one thing that as we get older, we start to forget the fact that we should remember everybody in our family and what sort of medical problems they have. Um, But ultimately, like, get that get that moderate exercise and certainly don't have to be too concerned about the heart aspect of it. Yeah. And I would love it if you guys would subscribe to our podcast, your doctor friends. You can't see it, but Jeremy and I are wearing our t-shirts that we had made for us right now. They look really great. They're really cozy. Yeah. We've got some amazing episodes coming up on the docket for the next month or two. So I would love if everybody would subscribe. We also have our Facebook group, Friends of Your Doctor Friends, where we like to have people chat back and forth. Yeah, and some new announcements to come up as we continue to grow the pod. And and we're excited to, to keep you all abreast of that. So without further ado, how do you want to sign us off, Jeremy? Exercise without fear, everybody. Ask your doctor friends. Peace. Perfect. The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.